Up next, I'm going to be turning to a very interesting man in the United States. Uh, he is a doctor, Dr. Stephen Post, and uh, he's the author of a fascinating book which has just been uh, released. The book is called God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. It is a brilliant book. I've had the, the opportunity. I am still busy reading it. Uh, what a book. And it, you know, for those of you who go, I'm more spiritual, etc., etc., the mention of, of God or whatever, everybody goes, ah, well, yeah, it's going to be one of those religious things. It's not. He's got a very, very interesting uh, belief system and, it, and it's got a very interesting way of uh, what he sort of attributes to God. And uh, I promise you, connectedness, it's brilliant. We'll talk to Stephen Post in just a bit. Right, all things being equal and technology playing along like it should. I should have on the line with me uh, Dr. Stephen Post. Good evening, Stephen, or good afternoon in your part of the world. Well, good afternoon. How's things in uh, the wonderful world of Pretoria? <laughs> it's a wonderful, wonderful day here. We, we, we're sort of approaching spring very quickly. So, uh, yep, everything's definitely looking up for us. Um, I may call you Stephen. We have discussed this. Um, but, oh, yes. uh, but, but uh, you are a doctor. And, in fact, you're a professor. Am I correct? Yeah, no, but how would you like to be referred to as? Uh, do, you, do you like? Yeah, I guess David. David is good, not Dave. David it is. Okay. David, Stephen Dave. David. <laughs> now, you, you're no stranger to the world of being an author, Stephen. Um, you've written a couple of books already. Um, the, the, the one that uh, a lot of people may know you for is Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. Um, and you've, you've been featured in magazines. You've been on televisions. You've done so much and when i was when i was sort of i got the book and i was reading the book i am still busy with the book it is absolutely brilliant we're going to get on to that um but let's start off right at the very very beginning tell me a little bit about Stephen, and then and then let's get into um the doctorate and, and what you do because you have a very interesting take on spirituality which i'd like to get into but let's start off with who is Stephen. Oh, my goodness me. I am uh, a professor at uh, a medical school in New York. I teach compassionate care, attentive listening, and communication techniques to students and clinicians and so that patients can benefit and also uh, the clinicians themselves can feel more fulfilled. Uh, call it a form of compassionate love. And I've done this at the University of Chicago at University of Michigan, 20 years in Cleveland, Ohio, which is really home at Case Med, and now I'm in New York at Stony Brook. Um, this has always been my my day job. Uh, I've really appreciated the ways in which uh, compassionate care really makes a difference in clinical outcomes, especially for people with chronic conditions. So that's me. I'm 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 my wife's husband of 37 years. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. <laughs> We have a couple of kids who are not kids anymore. They're grown up. Uh, and uh, we live here in New York. Uh, and I, uh, um, I'm i a pretty joyful guy. I, I like to look after people. I do a lot of consultation with uh, patients who are making difficult decisions about what to do and what not to do. Uh, so I direct a center that's called the Center for uh, Medical Humanities, Compassionate care and bioethics, uh, and it's been uh, 
it's been a very, very nice environment, and I'm very grateful for it. Now, is this something that you, you always wanted to do? Because the story and, and the book that we're going to be, be talking about, it's, it's uh, your latest book called God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Have you always – and I mean the story – it's it's a story of you. I mean, this is this is you that we're talking about in the story. Um, so you've always had this spiritual leaning and yet this desire to help people. Well, you know, I grew up uh, fairly isolated on a small street uh, along the coast of Long Island, and when I would get a little um, down and out, my mom would always tell me, "Well, Stevie, why don't you go out and help someone?" And uh, I did that. You know, in the book, I talk about Mr. and Mrs. Muller. Um, and I would go out and uh, mow lawns and, and just uh, do chores. And and uh, I very early on in life uh, recognized a kind of uh, joy and uh, giver's glow, a sort of aftermath of doing small things to help others. So it's certainly better than loneliness. It's certainly better than... Uh, negative emotions like bitterness and hostility so as a result most of my life i've uh tried to teach and and even demonstrate through a lot of research maybe more than 70 studies now about how in so many different categories um helping others getting the mind off the self and the problems of the self uh, contributes to your own uh, happiness and and wellness and even longevity uh, as a giver which, which, when you when you say that, you go, yeah, okay, right, all right, you know, go out and do something nice, but you know the story that you tell, and and it, it is your story. It is it's essentially your your coming of age story that you've you've now decided to share with the world. Um, it it is. I don't want to. I don't want to give away too much. What is the best way to to talk about this? Because we need to talk about the Blue Angel. I think that's important. Well, yeah, so Dave, so I, you know, I was actually born uh, on Long Island. It's ironic that I'm I'm back here now. Um, and when I was about uh, thirteen, I had the good fortune of getting off Long Island. I went up to a to an Episcopal, uh, I guess you'd call it an Anglican-based uh, uh, prep school in Concord, New Hampshire, called St. Paul's. And I loved it up there. You know, I loved the color of the leaves in the fall. It was nice. It was like being in a slightly pricey orphanage. It was great. We learned a lot. <laughs> we studied hard. And, you know, we were <clears throat> we were we were part of our generation. Uh, <clears throat> and and I loved uh, sacred studies. So I, I had a great um, uh, Anglican minister by the name of Rod Wells who taught great courses about you know modern theology and spirituality and he was also very much into buddhism so he knew alan watts who was a famous buddhist episcopalian at the time out on the west coast i just had a lot of great influences early on in life and that was the one thing i really took to as uh, as a youngster i just really uh, loved this i would walk around the paths and beautiful conquered new hampshire in the woods and i'd be reading the upanishads and i'd be reading various scriptures and and plotinus and one friend of mine ned perkins whose uh, grandfather uh, malcolm perkins was the famous editor for 
F. Scott Fitzgerald and Scribner's, and Charlie Scribner, by the way, was in my class. Uh, wow. He called me a peripatetic road duck, meaning that I sometimes <laughs> would sort of get lost in these in, in these readings, and and he wanted someone to run me over. So that was that was me. I, everybody played ice hockey up there. I didn't play a lot of ice hockey. I kind of defined it as. Uh, Moments of wanton violence interrupted by lengthy meetings and a lot of whistleblowing. <laughs> probably, <clears throat> one of the, probably one of the better uh, explanations of ice, ho- ice hockey I've heard. So well done there. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you, you've now, I mean, as I said, you know, you're now no, you're no stranger to writing and you've, you've authored uh, books before. You've authored a lot of papers. Um, what brought about this book, God and Love on Route 80. What made you decide now was the time to write this book? Well, you know, um, even though I've been teaching in medical schools uh, for, oh my gosh, 35 years, and I I really love the healing arts. It's just such a big part of my life. Uh, Reality is that that, uh, I actually did my doctorate in uh, psychology and world religions at the University of Chicago with people like uh, Joseph Campbell uh, and people like uh, Mersha Eliade who wrote Shamanism. I was very much uh, driven in that direction and I even um, set aside a all expenses National Institutes of Health paid career as an immunologist scientist at UPenn because I wanted to go off and do something that was closer to my soul. So this has always been a part of me, but the problem is, and I guess be honest about this, in big academic environments, sciencey environments that are on the whole fairly materialistic in their metaphysics, in their view of the universe, um, you know, I've always had to be a little bit circumspect. I've always done well in these environments, but I, I haven't been naive about them either. And, and uh, so while I've always written uh, a bit on spirituality, uh, you know, in the context of what I call the deeply forgetful people with Alzheimer's, uh, uh, spirituality and health, uh, um, and so forth, the bottom line is that uh, I wanted to uh, write a book that would honestly and forthrightly uh, present my experiences as really beginning as an adolescent and why I do the things I, I do. You know, people are very interested in what I do. Uh, I, I, you know, I get a lot of attention for that, but I rarely uh, have an opportunity to really explain why I do it. And why I do it is because when I was 15, I had an incredible recurring dream at St. Paul's School, and that's what set me on my course. Well, when we come back, I want to discuss the recurring dream. And uh, as I said earlier, I'd like us to uh, discuss the Blue Angel as well. There's going to be uh, a whole lot more of uh, Stephen Post when we chat. Uh, i got to tell you, brilliant book. We're going to find out where it's available, where we can get it. I am thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying it. Um, when I first saw it, God and Love on Route 8, I was like, okay, yeah. All right, the first thing that sprang to mind was a book I read many years ago called God and a Harley. I thought it was going to be similar to that. Uh, it's not. It's a brilliant book. When we come back chatting to Stephen, uh, we'll find out a little bit more about the book and why he wrote it. Monday night, the show is called What's Involved. My special guest on the line with me is uh, author of God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness, Stephen Post. And we were chatting about... 
uh, before we went to the break and the music, uh, Stephen, we're telling about the dream that you had when you were 15. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, it was early in the morning. I wasn't quite asleep. I wasn't quite awake, uh, but it was a very vivid experience. I would call it spiritual. And uh, here's what happened. Uh, I, uh, I saw uh, this early morning scene. Uh, it was misty, gray, silvery. Uh, I was on a road. I didn't know where, but it was headed somewhere uh, to the unknown west. And um, eventually I arrived uh, on some sort of a, of a ledge. And I saw a young, blonde-haired youth with um, fairly... Um, I would just say, uh, you know, dirty blonde hair. Uh, and he was leaning out on a ledge uh, about to go. He was leaning out over the sea. Um, and uh, then uh, suddenly the the gray and the silver uh, 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 gave way. And I saw blue and uh, there was a blue angel. I wasn't a believer in angels at the time. Uh, but I saw a blue angel, and she uh, said to me in a very uh, calming and um, empathic voice, if you save him, you too shall live. And then she faded back into the silver gray. And that was it. I had that dream six times over about a year and a half. I talked about it with Rod Wells, my sacred studies teacher in Anglican Priest, and he was a graduate of Yale University Divinity School, so he even uh, took me to Yale. And uh, I did a class, uh, a Master's of Divinity class, with a famous psychologist of religion, James Diddies, who was a Jungian, and um, oh, about a dozen or so uh, uh, graduate students there. And it was uh, it was great. They asked me about my dream and what it meant to me, and. Um, and, and I talked with it uh, with my colleagues, my peers. Uh, I, I mean, everybody around St. Paul's knew that I had had this dream. I wasn't quite sure what it meant or how to interpret them, so I would often ask them what they thought of it. Uh, but it was important to me, and it, and it kind of uh, it kind of shaped me uh, in certain directions. So even when I was applying to college, everybody from St. Paul's they go to Ivy League schools on the east coast of the United States, but I actually applied to a college in the Northwest, Reed College, which is a liberal artsy college uh, with a lot of good poets. And and I told the students at Yale that, and they were all completely shocked. <laughs> but that's uh, that's the dream. Okay, and that dream led to you actually setting out on a road trip. Well, it was a pull, but there was a push too, because so so Rod um, had had gotten me a job for that summer in the Bronx in New York uh, where my family lived um, and I was going to be doing some tutoring and I love tutoring. I tutored in New Hampshire actually with a lot of the French Canadian kids who were relatively uh, underprivileged uh, and I it, it was very meaningful to me. So um, uh, I had this great job. I was very enthused about it. I was headed to Swarthmore College which is a nice place and, and then uh, my mother and father told me that I couldn't work in the Bronx because it was too dangerous. And I didn't think it was too dangerous. And I asked them why, and I pushed back. And we had a pretty significant 
argument, a pretty deep argument. And finally, my mother said, hey, look, you take this job and I'm not going to not going to cover your tuition at Swarthmore. And she was really serious. And my dad chimed in. He'd been a lieutenant commander in the Navy in World War II. And this was a losing enterprise. So I said, all right, but what am I going to do this summer? Now, my dad was the president of a department store that's now defunct, but it was on Fifth Avenue. It's called W and J Sloan's department store. It was a very nice furniture store. Um, And he knew all the people around greater New York who um, owned factories. They made lamps and tables and desks and all those kinds of things. So he said, I've got a job for you. You can work in Bill DeBono's lampshade factory. (laughs) Oh, my God. And so I actually, for two weeks that summer, I worked in Bill DeBono's lampshade factory. Now, my dad had a secondhand gray Mercedes 190 that had seen better days, and I honestly think he bought it so that when he drove me up to St. Paul's, he could look pretty good, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, and that uh, there's another family car, so they, my parents drove the family car, and I drove the, the secondhand Mercedes to build the Bono's Lampshade Factory, which was about a half away from uh, hour, hour away from home. And I was between two very large, I say this respectfully, uh, very, very large uh, Italian women, in a sweaty uh, factory with no air conditioning, lots of people smoking, and I was cutting cardboard. I cut cardboard all day. And after two weeks of this, I was at my wit's end. So I drove out to West Hampton Beach, which is out on eastern Long Island. I had a couple of friends there, uh, including a a nice gal friend. And uh, we were talking, and then one night about 11 o'clock, I decided, you know, I really don't want to go to college anyway. I'm not sure it's my time for college. And, you know, things aren't so great at home with this lampshade factory. <laughs> so I'm going to follow the dream. So so there was a push, you know. Yeah. yeah. And that night, yeah, <laughs> I, I drove the car through Manhattan over the George Washington Bridge. And when you get over the bridge looking west, you know, you can take 95 south down to Washington, but I, that wasn't in the dream because the dream pointed west. So I saw this sign. It said Route 80 West. And I followed that road and I followed it till about five in the morning. I had maybe $50 in my pocket, my classical guitar. I had a book by Siddhartha and, and then an Aldous Huxley book uh, with me. So uh, I'm thinking, you know, I can turn around. I'm in the middle of Pennsylvania, but I can still just do a U-turn over the midway and I can go home and no one will ever know the difference and my reputation will not be lost. But lo and behold, just as I was thinking that, it was so uncanny. Um, In those days, um, you know, your listeners, David, will note, you know, uh, cars had things called uh, generators. And when the generators broke down, the all the electricity died, so the yeah. lights went out, the engine went out. It was the end then, and and so I just managed when that happened to get over on the right shoulder, and there I was. It was just there was no light out yet. Maybe there was just a little bit of of, of light dawn, and <clears throat> what was I going to do? There were no telephone booths around for miles. All I could see were you know fields of of, of, of wheat and corn. I was truly in the middle of nowhere. There were no cell phones back in that day. So I did the only thing that a kid could do. 
I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and I wrote in pencil to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane East, West Islip, New York, 516-669-5655. That was the phone number from his son who no longer works in the lampshade factory. <laughs> oh, that was terrible. I mean, this is a confession, you know. But it's, and so I, I, I got out of the years. I was out by the side of the car, and I had my classical guitar, and I had some a couple of books and a little pack full of things, and, and I just stuck my thumb out, and this big, huge, splashy truck came by, and a guy pulled over, and he flung open the door from above he had country and western clothing on and he said so where are you going boy and i said west and he said okay jump in and that was gary and i had the most wonderful couple of days riding with gary who dropped me off in chicago at grant park and i spent a couple of hours uh, a couple of days in grant park playing via lobos and granados and, and classical guitar for money which i was doing well with and uh, but I still wasn't out west, so there was a VW microbus full of hippie folks, and I said, uh, "Where are you headed?" They said, "We're going to San Francisco." I said, "Well, I'll I'll tag along if that's okay." And they let me have that ride. We got all the way out actually to to um, Nebraska uh, between you know there's Omaha, Nebraska on Route 80, and then there's Lincoln. And at Lincoln, one of these young ladies said to me, you know, you really, you really ought to call your mom. And, and and I said, okay. So we pulled over and collect. I called my mother and she picked up the phone and I said, hey, mom, it's me. I'm in Nebraska. <laughs> and she said, oh, my God, you're alive. I can call off the Pinkertons. You know, the Pinkertons were detectives. I guess they thought I'd been kidnapped or killed. The detective and, agency, very well known, are the Pinkertons, yeah, yes. Yeah, very well known. So I said, Mom, you mean you called the Pinkertons? Are you kidding me? And and, and, and and we talked about it. She said, look, you know, we should have let you work in the Bronx. It would have been better than this. My dad, the, 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 the Pennsylvania State Police called my, my dad, and he had the Mercedes uh, towed from the middle of Pennsylvania out to Long Island and was in the shop getting repaired. I told my mom that it was probably a blessing that this happened when I was in the car and I was able to get over because if she and dad had been driving, they might have gotten killed. She didn't quite take that well. <laughs> <laughs> and, then I, and then I said, I'm going out to San Francisco and can you give me George Lamont's address? He was my cousin. He'd been in Vietnam and he had a place out in the Mission District, which is the Hispanic section of San Francisco, and I went out there and I spent the summer with George. It is a truly fantastic story, and, I, and we are glossing over a couple of bits of it. But when we come back, I want to talk um, to you, Stephen, about about the spiritual significance of this journey. Um, and and, and I'd, I'd like to say here, yeah, I mean, and, and what I've been picking up in the book, one of my mentors always used to say to me that coincidence was God's way of remaining anonymous. And you've there's been a in this book in the story there's so much serendipity when we come back i'd like to have a chat to you about that absolutely 
my guest on the line. Um, fascinating, fascinating man. And I keep looking and thinking, I wish I had some more time to have a chat with him. Stephen, so uh, we were talking just before the break, and, and, and you, were, you were telling us a little bit about this journey that, that you went on. But you talk about, and, and, and um, I think it was somebody who mentioned it, is, is that uh, in terms of, of the spiritual side of things, um, you, 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 you kind of don't have, well, I suppose a lot of people would say it's a, a non-conventional belief because you believe in this, this, this mind, this, this mind where we're all connected, the infinite mind. Yeah, that's really right. And that's why synchronicity and intuitions and premonitions are really such a big part of the book. So, you know, I got out to San Francisco and I, I lived with my cousin George on Chenery Street. There was a Nichiren Shoshu Buddhist temple on the corner of Chenery and Market. And I, I joined and we chanted Nam Yoho Renge Kyo with a big group of people. And it was very mystical. And I had a mentor named Gus. He was a Japanese-American, an old man, and he would follow me around the Mission District, and I played classical guitar in Hispanic restaurants, and I was doing pretty well. But then, for better or for worse, I got a really bad number in the draft, and I didn't particularly want to go to Vietnam. So I called Reed College in Portland, Oregon, which I, I turned them down, but I said, look, I don't really want to go to college, but I need to go to college because if I don't go to college, I'm going to wind up in Vietnam. And they admitted me right there. Uh, they readmitted me. And in the morning, it's about seven in the morning, out in front of the temple with Gus and and uh, and George, uh, I set off. And I, I took a Market Street bus down to the Golden Gate Park, and I walked across the park. It's about a 20-minute walk to the um, Golden Gate Bridge, and I walked over the bridge because that was the way to go north to Oregon, uh, Reeds in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and it's misty, it's silvery, it's gray. I, I couldn't see more than about four, maybe five feet in front of me. Uh, and I'm on the walkway on the left, and then there's a kind of a waist-high railing, and then there's a ledge on the other side of the railing. So I get to the middle of the bridge, and I hear a kind of ruffling sound, and I look to my left, and lo and behold, I see a blonde-haired youth with stringy blonde hair. He's leaning out off the ledge over the sea, and uh, I looked at him. I, I'm completely astonished, and I said in a fairly quiet uh, and empathic voice, um, I, I said, you're not planning to, to jump, are you? And he, and he responded, again, I'm just paraphrasing, yes, and what's it to you? And, and then he even started quoting some Macbeth about empty nothingness. And, and you know, I'd heard that back at St. Paul's when we did uh, Macbeth in Memorial Hall. And I said, it sounds a lot more realistic when you're out there on a ledge ready to jump. So I said, look, don't jump. And he said, why? And I said, because, you know, I think. I think that I have been guided all the way out here. I think I had a dream, a recurring dream in, in, in school. I think um, I was working in the lampshade factory. I took the car. The car broke down at the perfect moment in the middle of Pennsylvania, so I just had to keep on going. And um, 
I, I said, you know, I was brought here into the West. I didn't know where, but somehow or another, I think I'm supposed to be here on the middle of this bridge talking to you. Again, I'm just paraphrasing. And, and he was very defiant. Um, and he said, there's nothing you can do to change my mind. And I said, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe I have something. So I had in my backpack um, a Gahon zone. And some of your listeners will know about this. It's a Japanese scroll. Uh, and uh, it cost me about 40 or 50 bucks uh, uh, at the temple. And it's supposed to give you luck, you know, the rest of your life. The, you know, the Buddhists like to do that kind of thing. You know, lucky, lucky things matter for them. And I guess they matter for us all. But it's a beautiful scroll, and it, and, and, and it has Japanese symbolism about meaning and depth and not being so busy as to fail to notice the action of the divine. So there's this heart with a line slashed through it, which is the Japanese symbol for busy. And, and I said, look, I, I'm going to give this Gahon zone to you, Harry. I, I found out his name is Harry. If, if you come across the railing and and let me really explain it to you in depth so he came across and i i I explained all about the gahon zone and i said now i'm going to give this to you but there's another thing you have to uh walk down the bridge he'd calmed down a lot by now i don't know what what was going on with him mentally but he'd calmed down a lot somehow i brought him into his into his inner inner being and and and, and, and I said, you've got to walk down, walk across Golden Gate Park, get the Market Street bus, and go to my cousin George's on 4 Chenery Street, and then tell George, give him this note. I wrote a note to George. You know, this is Harry. Please let him sleep on the, on the floor where I was sleeping, and take him down to the temple to see Gus, which George George did. And, and Harry um, uh, apparently did pretty well. I didn't actually see him because I came back from Oregon at Thanksgiving. And by that time, Harry had left George's and he'd gone back to North Carolina where he was from. Um, But to me, you know, as I walked down the bridge, I was going North, Harry was going South. I'm going North. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, maybe there was really something to that, that recurring dream. It it just is so uncanny. I couldn't make this up. And, you know, um, there's no way to explain it with probability and statistics because it's just so it's so improbable. Um, I just think that this is a sign that there's a loving, higher being in this universe called the supreme being, the one mind, whatever whatever you want to call it. Uh, uh, Emerson would call it the oversoul, but something that we're all a part of, and our minds aren't just. Um, biological they're not just derived from tissues and cells and 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 a brain but there's a non-local element to our to our minds i mean jung would call it the collective unconscious uh the hindus would call it the supreme mind but somehow we're we're all participating in that and that's why why you know i could have that dream even if it was two years before i actually was out on the on the Golden Gate Bridge. So it was beyond time. It was beyond place. It was 3,000 miles away. It was on the East Coast. This was on the West Coast. But somehow when we're in that mind, uh, time and, 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 and place disappear, and, um, and, and amazing things can happen. So th- this to me was just you know, an incredible experience. And, and, I, and I was really 
from that point on, I think I was convinced that there really is a cherishing, loving energy in this universe, and it brings us together for good purposes. And I think, and I think this is this is the important part, though, because I think this book has come at a, at a at a particular time, and and it and it's obviously your story as well. But there is, and I don't know if you've noticed it, I've certainly noticed it here in our country, there is this change, and, and, and I think there's a groundswell, and it's, getting, it's, it's gaining momentum, where people are kinder. People are starting to acknowledge these connections, and to acknowledge that we all are connected in one way or another. Have you found these, these sort of things to be true, this connectedness, this, you know, it's, it's all of these strange little coincidences that, that if you start to look for them, you're surrounded by them. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Larry Dossie uh, wrote the foreword to the book. He's a physician. He was a very famous physician. And he, he actually wrote a book about five years ago called One Mind. And it's a really beautiful book. Um, there are physicists um, um, who, who, who believe that, that there is this kind of unifying one mind. Uh, the philosophers like Hegel and Plotinus and Schopenhauer, and I can rattle off names. I mean, this is actually a very solid position in um, both Eastern and Western thought. And the thing is, you know, we're, we're into such a materialistic era right now that if you even dare talk about something this spiritual that there's the uh, this non-local mind that that mind comes from comes before matter and 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 that we can be connected in these things some people think it's really really crazy but not so much anymore and i find you know surprisingly that that people are really engaged and and i i wrote the book really david because i wanted people to be free you know i i when i talk about these episodes of synchronicity in the book it, it's astonishing suddenly whoever's listening they'll say wow um are you still there yes yes okay. listening away are you still there yes we oh. are <laughs> yeah okay well so when i tell people about these episodes of synchronicity um they actually feel liberated because they've all had them. They've all had these incredible moments of intuition, these incredible premonitions that occurred, and they've never felt free enough to talk about them. But now they can talk about them, and I think it's a beautiful thing because it's, it's a part of their lives. It's a part of their journeys. It is indeed, and, and uh, we've, we're unfortunately running out of time. I could talk about this stuff forever. But, uh, Stephen, the book is it, it's out now. It is available. Um, where are we going to be able to get it in South Africa uh, in, in our bookstores, or is online going to be our best bet? I guess online is probably the, the best bet. It's called God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. And uh, you can get it, uh, you know, electronically, or you can get a paperback. Uh, and I guess it would be on Amazon or whatever there is in, mm. in, in South Africa. Um, but uh, you know, uh, it's it's a book I always wanted to write. Um, it's a very open book, and it tells some incredible um, accounts of synchronicity that have completely shaped my life and you know, kept me off Wall Street and made me the person I am. And and ultimately, you know, uh, I've had a very nice life. But this thread of a blue angel dream has always been there, whether it's uh, 
um, you know, at Chicago or even uh, uh, filling the United Nations with young people who wrote essays about pushing back against peer pressure to hate other people just because they didn't share their beliefs. And that's after my institute's website was taken down by Team DZ ISIS in 2014. So. Uh, yeah, that's in the book and, and you know, e- the images and the emails from my board of directors. And this was something I'd started with Sir John Templeton, who was my mentor in a lot of ways. So everything comes together with this with this dream. And, and I've tried in my own way over the course of my life to follow the dream. Sometimes it's very powerful in its presence and sometimes it's very faint. But I, I, try, to, I try to keep it in mind and... And I loved Chagall, the, the painter, because Chagall, when he was 17, his dad wanted him to work in a in a pickle factory in a city in Russia, and he didn't want to do that, so he ran away to St. <laughs> Petersburg. And he was he was in an alley; he had no money. He wasn't even painting it; he was sketching. And he's he's lying on a on a on a mattress with a couple of old bums. This is, he wrote about this, and and and. And suddenly the alley fills with blue and, he's, and he hears fluttering and he sees this angel and then it, it ascends and leaves blue behind. The rest of his life, he, he paints all his Chagall stained glass windows yeah. at the UN. It's all blue angels. And when he died, uh, he was in a studio outside of Paris and he was painting a blue angel. Well, Stephen, all I can say is the book is an absolute treat. Um, I am, you know, there's books that I read and I have to devour them as fast as I can. And then there are some that I want to savor and I really don't want it to end. Yours is one of them. It is a phenomenal book. I am thoroughly enjoying it. I'm savoring each and every bit. I have to ration myself to like a half an hour reading at a time uh, (laughs) because otherwise it's going to be long time finished. But it's a brilliant book. Uh, It's available electronically. We can get it on Amazon. Uh, It's called God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness by Stephen G. Post. Stephen, thank you so much for the book. Uh, Thank you for having the kind of of passion and freedom to do what you do. And uh, I'd just like to wish you all the best. And again, thank you for taking time out to chat with us. Thank you, David. It's such a pleasure. And uh, my, my, my regards to George Ellis, a physicist I know from from South Africa, who's always been a great friend in the conversation between science and theology. Wonderful stuff. Go well, enjoy the rest of the afternoon, and uh, well, we'll be looking forward to uh, another book from you in the not-too-distant future. <laughs> okay, maybe. <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There we go. What a man to chat to. Uh, that is uh, Stephen G. Post, and it's a brilliant book, okay? It's one of those books. Do yourself a favor. Uh, go out, get it, read it. 